We have been looking at the Psalms throughout the summer. In fact, not just this summer, but the last several summers. And I suppose it's not uh, out of place to answer the question, why would you just go through the Psalms from start to finish and read all of them when you could skip Psalm 58? And my first answer is that we have been looking at the Psalms in the summertime. This is completely pragmatic and I shouldn't even admit it. But I know that people take vacations in the summer and they go and then they come back. And if we had something that built one week to the next week to the next week, it would be really hard for people to get the whole flow of it in the summer. So instead, we just do one Psalm a Sunday and they stand alone and that's just the practical side of things that got me started preaching the Psalms. And this week I'm thinking, why? Why be so practical? Well, I think there's really good reason to be looking at the Psalms, every single one of them, not just the ones we like. One of the reasons that we need to read the Psalms is that they present to us a worldview that is completely unlike the one that we have been trained in. They present to us a supernatural view of the world where there is a God in heaven, where there are other spirits underneath uh, in this world causing the kings to rebel, causing the wicked to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And there is a supernatural view of the world that we miss when we don't read Psalms like this. I mean, for most, for most of us, I think if you're like me, you get the basics, right? Like, I'm here on earth. God's in heaven. And that's kind of all there is because I can't see anything else. And my reality is defined by the things I see, the cause and effect, the empirical data that I take in. And this psalm presents more than that, and many of them do. And so that's one of the reasons that it challenges the way that we view the world. Another reason we're looking at every single psalm is that the psalms present God as not tame. Most of us would create a benign God in our own image that is exactly what we want Him to be whose shapes and contours fit the shapes and contours of our lives, whose likes and dislikes fit my likes and dislikes. We create a God who is just like us, only maybe a wee bit better, but nonetheless, He doesn't, He isn't His own person. He's a manufactured item of our own imagination. That's the way that most of us treat God until you run into a psalm like Psalm 58 when you, you can't make Psalm 58 into what you want it to be. You can't make the God of Psalm 58 into what you want Him to be. And so, I want you to recognize God is not safe. He is not tame. He does not abide by your rules. And 
the glory of it is, you get to see that for yourself this morning. Do you realize there are, there are Christians in this world who never hear anything about God that makes them uncomfortable. And they're impoverished because of it. But this morning, <laughs> you get to be uncomfortable. And you get to encounter God as He reveals Himself to be. Which is a great, great gift. Another reason that we ought to touch on every single uh, psalm and go through them in order so that we don't just pick our favorite ideas is that this psalm in particular, and there are others, that they challenge our shallow and flat view of the world. They offer to us a complexity that we're not used to. We want things to be black or white, good or bad, Democrat or Republican, conservative or progressive. We want a label for everything and we want it to be neatly in its box in this world. And it's not. We want to know just exactly what we were to do, what boxes we were to check that help us, you know, do the right thing, and we want it to be sort of mechanical. We're not going to see a mechanical view or an easy view or a binary view of the world in this psalm. This is, it's a challenge to us. I just wanted to put that out there because we're not, I'm even going to suggest, we're not capable of getting everything that is in all of these psalms about who God is. And even, even we're not able to get things that are in Psalm 58. Because they are just mind-blowing, I think. And so, let's take a look at it. And just be prepared to be a little uncomfortable. Be prepared to come face to face with a God that doesn't conform to what you want Him to be. So Psalm 58, beginning in verse 1. This is to the choir master according to do not destroy the mechtam of David. Which is quite ironic just in the title, isn't it? You already heard it sung. It's, it's sung to the tune of do not destroy. And there's plenty of destruction here, right? You're supposed to get the joke, I think. Okay, It's like having, having to wear earplugs when you hear the sound of silence sung. I do not... Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man... Uprightly. Okay, we're nine words in. We have problems already, right? Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Now, if you're looking in NIV, it'll say rulers. If you're looking in King James, it'll say rulers. Um, most versions 
um, tame this down because it's uncomfortable and because we're not used to talking about the world in terms of Yahweh, God of the Bible, and lesser gods. Okay? In fact, we prefer the language in the prophets where they talk about idols as though they're a piece of metal fashioned in a fire. They come out and the uh, idol maker nails it to a board and you put it on a shelf and that's all there is to it. We like that language because that's nice and safe and clean and it goes on a shelf. When in fact, what this psalm presents is a view of the world where Yahweh, where God is God, the God of the Bible is the supreme and perfect and eternal God, and there are other gods. These other gods, sometimes underneath the nations, sometimes underneath the wicked, sometimes prompting you know, actions, sometimes simply lying. And there is this supernatural view of the world that I think helps us understand those things that don't make sense in this world. Those things that appear to be one thing and another. The things that are deceptive. And so, David, in the very first line, calls out the spiritual reality underneath the wicked people. There are problems in heaven before there are problems on earth, you might say. Where there are spiritual problems before there are physical problems. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly or righteously? And so there is a question to these spiritual beings about their righteousness and about the way that they act in the world that I don't have very many categories for. I'm just going to say. But it does help you when you view our world to look at the chaos that is around and say, why is there such chaos? And I think one of the reasons there's so much chaos is that there is spiritual reality underneath the physical reality. The Bible presents this routinely. I mean, there, uh, and Daniel talks about the angel um, of Persia who was late because he was busy. There, in Job chapter one, it talks about um, you know the 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 spirits who were uh, in God's presence, and Satan had gone out throughout the whole earth. I mean, it's it's here. Just happens to be the introduction to Psalm fifty-eight. And so I want you to, to say to yourself, is my modern view of the world with its scientific method and with its view of uh, empirical uh, you know, reality, is that all there is? Or do I, need to, do I need to step back and see in the Scriptures that the Bible presents us with a bigger picture. That's really all I want to challenge you with this, uh, this morning. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of men uprightly? Then he goes on and, he's, and he still speaks to those 
spiritual beings, know in your hearts you devise wrongs and your hands deal out violence on the earth. Because the agenda of these uh, opponent gods, you might say, these, uh, the agenda of these gods who are against the true God is wrong, wickedness, violence. And so they are wreaking havoc in the world. That's, that's the basic introduction that David makes to, to explain then why he gets to the place he gets to with the wicked. So there is this spiritual conflict before there is a physical conflict. There is, first of all, the, the, the gods who are against the one true God before there are the wicked who are against God's representative, David the king. So then he gets to the wicked. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. So David's confession here, his description of the wicked is that they have been estranged from God from birth. And they have acted it out from birth. Okay. This is not something that we're comfortable with either, is it? Right? People are, you know, they're basically good until they do something bad. That's not the way that he's talking about it here. They are estranged from birth. Now, lest you think that this is some condescending sort of, you know, um, discussion about those other people. I want to remind you, it was just a few weeks ago in Psalm 51, where David said, in sin my mother conceived me. So he understands it this way. He understands reality to be that the wicked are estranged from the womb and they go astray from birth, and they are in a category of those who are opposed to God. That's what makes them wicked. And then he says, I was there. Right? Save for the grace that brought me into the other category of righteous. Okay, And you see this in Psalm 1. There are two. The sinners will not stand in judgment nor the wicked in the congregation of the righteous. There, there, there are those two categories of people. And Psalms generally treats them categorically. And it's doing that here. Now, one of the complicating factors, and this is why that challenges our you know, easy, binary worldview, is that these wicked who are estranged from the womb, who go astray from birth speaking lies, these are people you love. These are people in your neighborhood. These are people in your city government. These are people who teach your children. These are people, real people. And you're to love them and to recognize their rebellion against God. This is not, this is not something that is easily Done. Those two things are not held in the same brain very easily. There is no place here for pride when David is, was born himself in sin. No place then 
to look over the edge and say, oh, I'm so much superior than you. This is not that. This is a, there is just both a, both a hatred of evil and a brokenheartedness and a love for evil people. And how do you do that? I don't have any, I don't have any special things for you other than to say it causes us to come before God regularly and humbly. Well, these wicked, he continues, they have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. Then he says, like the uh, cobra uh, does not hear the voice of the charmers or the cunning enchanter. And so they, he, he has the picture here of them as this cobra. I mean, that, where he's up and he's, and he's swaying and, the, and he's not paying attention to the person charming him and he's, he's attacking him, right? That's the kind of thing. That's what these uh, wicked are doing to David. They are attacking him. And so he recognizes they're not listening to the voice of the charmer. They're not... They're not doing what they ought to do. They're wicked. And so, the pain that they are causing him prompts him then to pray. Now, this, this prayer isn't any easier than the first part of this is either. So, he prays, O oh God, Elohim, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, Yahweh. So here in the center of the psalm, one of the things that is really helpful if you want to get a clue as you read the psalms, how do I understand this? Here in the center, the, 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 the clue is often in the center. And here in the center is the one true God acting against these other gods and acting against the wicked. There is Yahweh, the personal God of Israel. And he appeals to the God who has made covenant with him and with Israel to tear out the fangs of the young lions. Okay. Be aggressive in your judgment of the wicked. See how uncomfortable this is already, right? Yesterday, I went down picking um, blackberries, and on my way home, on the path, this uh, woman was coming down hill with two dogs that were too big for her to control, and one of them attacked me, and uh, you know, got my arm, and before I got him off, and I felt this kind of indignation yesterday. I'm just going to say. Go ahead and tear out the fangs of that dog. That would be okay with me. But you see, that's not a happy feeling. I didn't say that because I had warm, fuzzy feelings. Because I was comfortable or because I was happy about the way the world was working. I wasn't. And that's what prompted you know, those feelings. And that's what prompts this prayer. The world is not working like it should See, now, 
Well, that's one of the reasons we have, we got to talk about this. Because the world doesn't work like it should. It doesn't work like I want it to. And then what? So I think that's one of the reasons that, that people have a hard time coming to grips with Christianity is because the world isn't working like it's supposed to. And then we come along and we say so, only the nice things, right? That God loves you and He you know, wants you to be full of joy and He wants your you know, family and your marriage to be all happy. And they don't... It doesn't compute. Where here is this honest um, request for judgment because it's not working like it should. Break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. And now it, 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 gets, it gets worse. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Oh God, break the... Oops, I went the wrong way. Sorry. Ah. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Like stillborn child who never sees the sun. I mean, what? It's as though he is grasping... For every kind of um, awful thing that he can go after. And whether it's a snail, whether it's a, a blunt arrow, whatever it is, even if it's a pot that, that just the, the, the thorns underneath the pot flash in instant heat. God, make that happen. And he's, he's reaching for these images of judgment where He's asking that the wicked have no place in this world. That's really sobering. My guess is that you don't pray that way. My guess is that it's probably not in your toolkit to have a set of prayers like this one that says, God, You are righteous and good and just and holy and perfect and there are people in rebellion against You. Deal with them as You see fit. Okay, that, I can't even bring myself to say worse than that, can I? I mean, that's as bad as I can do. But here, David, much more accomplished... <laughs> at asking God to bring judgment on the wicked. See, and if I don't care about if I don't care about wickedness, if I don't hate it, I'm not where I need to be with respect to being righteous either. See, I, I mean I, I think that I can tolerate these things in my own you know, mine and I can accept them or, you know, it can be whatever it's going to be. But that just suggests that it's about me. Because I can put up with that. Instead of my being before God and Him addressing what is there. And that's what this prayer is for. is all of these ways to make the wicked as though they didn't even exist. 
And just to make sure that you understand that that's where it is, that this is a prayer of God's judgment on the wicked, he makes it explicit in the conclusion. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Okay, this, the, um, the lyrical version that Christian sang a little bit ago talked about God's vengeance. And I think that is really clear. This is, this is God's vengeance, not David's vengeance. It's not, I want to do them wrong, but rather, I want God to do them right and to give them what their deeds deserve. And he says, the righteous, so again, placing himself in the righteous camp, he is saying, I will be glad when God brings vengeance. Now, I want to suggest to you that you can't live practically as a Christian unless you are here. You will be bitter and angry and vengeful toward other people who hurt you. In fact, Romans chapter 12 says, give place to God's wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When you can do that, which is what this verse is about, when you can do that, then you can let it go. It's in better hands than mine. That's what he's talking about here. The righteous will rejoice when he sees God's vengeance. (laughs) And then, he says, he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Okay. So one of the ways that you understand Psalms also, okay, is that you know, when we do a poem, we make it rhyme. We make the first line rhyme with the second line. Okay, that so when it was anglicized and Christians sang it, you notice the first line rhymes the second line. In Hebrew poetry, the the first idea rhymes with the second idea. So this bathing his feet in the blood of the wicked is an awful image. It's an image from a battlefield where God triumphs and the righteous still stand. They are thankful and rejoicing to have endured this judgment. I mean, it is not an easy image But the idea is that the battle, the the last bullet has flown, the last explosion has taken place, the last sword has been uh, put back in its sheath, and the righteous are still standing. And they rejoice at God's vengeance. And so, I, I just want to put it to you uncomfortably to say, do you see wickedness with such hatred? Do you see sin as this awful? Do you see God as this holy and perfect and right? Or are your categories sort of mixed? 
so that things aren't as big a deal to you as they should be. So on the battlefield, the righteous still stand in judgment when the wicked are slain and their blood is everywhere. I mean, this, the image is actually worse in Revelation when, when it's looking at the, the final judgment of God in Revelation, the, the angel swings its sickle and the, the blood flows as high as a horse's bridle for, for miles. Okay, again, I think this is hyperbole. I think that's hyperbole. I think the whole thing lets us know that God is serious in His intent to judge sin. And so before I just move off of this verse, I want to say one other thing. I hope this makes you uncomfortable. I hope you just shake your head and say, why is this in my Bible? See, one of the reasons this is in your Bible is because this is the way that God sees justice and His hatred for sin and wickedness and evil. And you might say, I don't want this in my Bible. I only want the good parts. One of the good parts about Jesus, right? I want the parts that say, God loves me. Okay, I like those parts too. But I want you to realize what the cross means. The cross of Jesus means that God exercises this kind of judgment on sin. person of His own Son. See, if you don't like this because it makes you uncomfortable, you can't like the cross. Because the cross has this level of animosity against sin built right into the central fact of our faith. Which makes me extremely thankful that that this kind of judgment and wrath spent on Jesus means that it's not going to be spent on me. John chapter 3 verse 36 says that uh, for those who believe in him the wrath of God will not rest on them. You are saved from this wrath because it was put on Jesus on the cross. And if you, if you, can't, if you say, I don't like a God that is full of wrath, you don't understand the cross. Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says that uh, it talks about turning to God from idols, to, to turning to serve God from idols, so that because we are not destined for wrath, but for life, because of the work 
of Jesus. Now there's, there's still another part to this conclusion to, to bring this full circle. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. I think that this is the missing piece for, for people as they evaluate Christianity as a worldview. If it's all about God being nice, they don't really need it, right? Because God's nice. But God's intent in judging sin is that all mankind... So part of God's worldwide mission here is to show judgment so that people's eyes are open and they say, wait a minute, surely there is a reward for the righteous. And there is a God who judges on earth. If heaven is no better than earth because sin is there, if God doesn't really care about righteousness and goodness and honesty and truth and purity and loveliness, and God doesn't care about those things, why would we need to believe in Him? And so he presents this psalm of judgment because all mankind needs to know that there is a God in heaven who rewards the righteous and who judges the earth. And you see, we are, we are back to where we began. There are these other gods, right? Who, who don't judge rightly. Look at verse 1. Or verse 2. They don't judge rightly. And here is a God in heaven who does judge righteously. They don't uh, treat mankind rightly. I don't know what your version says in verse 2. But here, mankind recognizes there is one God above all gods who treats people justly and rightly. And so we have this psalm where David prays for God to bring judgment on the wicked. Because God is righteous and He judges the earth. You see, this is, this is part, an uncomfortable part, maybe. This is part of what it means to believe in a God that's not tame. To believe in a God who is bigger than your imagination. To believe in a God who reveals Himself to be right and perfect and holy rather than simply nice. And I want to suggest to you that the personality, you might say, of who God is, is um, fully contoured, not just shaped on the nice side of things where I want Him to be. 
I have to deal with God as He is, not as I'm comfortable with Him being. Yes, you have Psalm 58, which presents a very difficult conversation about the judgment that God brings. And you must hold that with God's concern for mankind, for lost people. See, the end of this is ultimately that mankind comes to their senses. See, I mean, you, some of you are maybe quoting to yourself, he doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He does. And that's, the end. that's why he tells you about judgment. So that you turn from your sin. And is ultimately part of God's redemption to warn you against the great judgment to come. And then, the other piece of this is just the final statement. There is a God, there is a God who exists who judges the earth. Okay? There are other gods who deceive the earth. There are other gods who cause all sorts of problems. There is a spiritual reality. But there is a God in heaven who judges the earth. And I feel, I feel completely confident in talking to you this way. Because I'm not just trying to scare you out of hell into heaven. Okay. Rather, I am here talking about God's judgment on sin, promising you that God has completed that judgment against sin on the person of His Son, Jesus, when He hung Him on the cross. If God didn't care about sin, there would be no cross. If God was merely nice, there would be no cross. If God was simply uh, conformed to my imagination, there would be no cross. But the very fact is, central to what the Bible presents, central to the good news, is the cross of Jesus, which stands as God's testament that His wrath against sin will never be spent on those who trust in Jesus. So if you simply say, and mean it with all your heart, that God's wrath against sin, my sin, has already been taken care of on the cross of Jesus. That's what I'm trusting in. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. That's the Christian hope. That's, that's why this psalm doesn't scare us, but rather causes us to have compassion on those who do not trust in Christ. May God help us as we attempt to adjust ourselves to Him instead of trying to adjust Him to ourselves. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we are humbled by what is here.
would you, would you help every person here, God, to trust in Jesus, that He is the satisfaction of your wrath, that there is nothing that you will, n- none of this will apply to those who trust Christ. So, Father, I pray everyone in earshot would submit themselves to You and trust Jesus to be their Savior. And, oh God, would You grant us a hatred for evil? Would You grant us freedom from it in our own lives? Would You judge it in the world? And, God, would You help us to see clearly um, the world the way that You see it? Would You help us see people the way that you see them. And we need your help for this in Jesus' name. Amen.